A reading from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 32, verses 1 through 4. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm. Like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land, then the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of the stammers will hasten to speak distinctly. This is the word of the Lord. A reading from the book of Acts, chapter 10, verses 34 through 43. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is the word of the Lord. Hello, Mission Fellowship. While I would much rather be worshiping with you face to face, my heart is encouraged to know that so many of you are gathering in your homes, doing your part to limit the spread of the coronavirus among those in our church and our community that are most vulnerable. Before we begin this morning, I'd like to take a moment in silence and stillness to quiet our spirits, minds, and bodies, and submit them fully to the Lord as we silently lay our burdens down at his feet. And then I want to speak the pastoral prayer that Dallas sent to all of us, as it is very much pertinent to what we're living through today. Would you take a deep breath and join me in a silent meditation? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge our dependence upon you. This virus has reminded us of our frailty. We have subdued much of the earth with our innovation and creative acts, but we are reminded in this moment how frail and powerless we really are. So we repent of our self-sufficiency and hubris. Lord, we lament the fallen nature of our world, which mars the beauty of your created order. COVID-19 comes to steal and destroy, 
to worm its way through human bodies and spread its vile sickness across communities and nations and the world. We, like your son, weep and rage at sickness and death. And yet we know that it was Jesus whose death and resurrection defeated this final foe. We long for the day you resurrect our bodies and restore the world. As we endure this new normal in our lives, we pray earnestly for the heroic medical doctors, nurses, and healthcare professionals who are putting their lives on the line for their neighbors. May you give them strength and physical immunity during this time so they can help push back against this ravaging virus. We pray for the scientists, disease experts, and epidemiologists who are working feverishly on vaccines and testing mechanisms. Lord, we thank you for gifting them with knowledge and wisdom we don't have. We pray for their endurance, for breakthroughs, and for resources. Lord, you are the great physician, so we pray for healing for the victims of COVID-19. Lord, you are the creator with power over the creation, so we pray for COVID-19 to be destroyed. Spirit of God, you are the comforter, so please comfort our troubled souls. Dear God, move in the hearts of our public officials. As you have instructed us in your word, we earnestly beseech you on behalf of our president, Congress, governors, mayors, and local officials. We pray you guide them with wisdom and strength and discernment. We also pray for the people in our nation and the nations of the world to be humbled and turn to you in repentance and faith. We know you are the Prince of Peace, Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. We praise you for your goodness and your mercy, and we ask this all in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Well, it has been a surreal couple of weeks, has it not? Life has completely changed for so many across the entire world. If you are anything like me, your focus has quickly become the practical. Do we have the supplies we need if we get a shelter-in-place order? Is my family safe? Are any of us sick? These thoughts dominate our minds. You find yourself checking the ever-changing news cycle, waiting for the proverbial other shoe to drop or for more information to become available. Just as in the days before coronavirus, our senses are overloaded with input and information coming in from every angle. When we are not looking at the news online, we are bringing the internet to its knees with streaming video to help us escape reality. And many of us are trying to figure out routines for our children so they are not stir-crazy. And many of us don't lose our minds. Churches are not all that different. I've watched at a distance as churches are pumping out more and more online content, trying to do the same thing we did before coronavirus. I've felt that same need myself. Asking, how do we do the same thing we have always done, just in a different format? But this week, something dawned on me as I was looking at one news story in particular. This was a story that was asking the question, why so many people were still trying to live life as normal, even in spite of all the warnings and calls to stay at home? Why, this article was asking, are so many still living as if there is not a worldwide pandemic? The question of this article, in summary, was, why are so many people not listening? 
I even have to ask that question of myself as I go about my daily business. And more and more as restrictions have come, I've found myself waging war internally against them. This question of why are so many people not listening caused me to recall to mind a podcast I listened to last week put on by a pastor I greatly respect, who was suggesting that perhaps rather than trying to find a replacement for business as usual, we admit to ourselves that this is not business as usual. He suggested that we instead recognize this as such an important time in history that we stop and take notice and still ourselves to hear from God. As the church, maybe it's time to listen to the screeching halt that has happened as a society and realize this is the time to actually perk up and listen for what God is calling us to. This is a time for the church more so than ever, to seek to hear from God in a new way. In our text this morning, we will see stories of two unlikely people who heard from God far more than even God's own people at the time. My prayer for us, as we study it and apply it to our lives, is that perhaps it will cause us to have hearts ready to hear as well. So that's what I've titled this teaching this morning. If you're taking notes, you can write down the title, Hearts ready to hear. As we begin our teaching this morning, let's do what we normally do and look at the surrounding context and biblical theology. Remember that Mark is largely broken up into two sections, with the hinge between those sections sitting at uh, chapter 8, verses 27 through 30, in which Peter answers the question, Who do you say that Christ is? This is the overarching theme of Mark, as we've seen. And so we find our text today in a section that is comparing the lack of faith of those who should know who Jesus is and follow him with the faith that does indeed see who he is and that he is the Messiah spoken of throughout the Old Testament. Two weeks ago, we looked at the fact that Mark pictures Jesus as the Exodus God incarnate, the Messiah come to save his people. Mark has been showing these references to Jesus as God incarnate throughout his gospel. But then last week, as Tyler taught so well, the Pharisees missed the point completely. Mark shows them as completely misunderstanding Jesus. In our text from last Sunday, Mark seems to contrast the deafness of the Jewish leaders with what we will read this week about the faithful hearing of two unlikely Gentiles. And that is the first point I want to cover this morning. If you're taking notes, you can jot down this first point. The deafness of the Jewish leaders kept them from hearing. The deafness of the Jewish leaders kept them from hearing. Go back with me to the beginning of Mark 7, and let's think about the Jewish leaders for a moment. The Pharisees were supposed to be the keepers of God's word, the great scholars who could plumb the depths of God's law, but they had missed the point. You see, the Pharisees knew and pridefully protected the fact that they, and the rest of Israel, were seen as the children of God. They knew that God had chosen them out from among all other nations to be his own. They had a kind of ethnic pride. And so it wasn't quite that they were trying to gain salvation or covenant relationship with Yahweh through their actions and works. It was more that they saw themselves as the purifying factor among Israel. And this is why they heaped laws upon laws upon laws. They viewed the dispersion, the exiles, and now the Roman occupation of their land as punishment from Yahweh against an unholy and impure nation of idol worshipers. And so the Pharisees, like what we see later in Saul of Tarsus, viewed themselves as the cleansing force in Israel to bring the people's hearts back to God and to purify their society. 
When Jesus comes on the scene then, they are furious that this rabbinic leader would talk to Gentiles and touch people with impure diseases. He was breaking everything they stood for. Now, we like to beat up on the Pharisees in Christianity, but pause with me for a moment. Wasn't it generally a good thing that they wanted to purify the people and turn their hearts away from idols towards Yahweh? Well, yes, it was. But in doing so, they are missing the entire point of God's mission and plan. This confusion is what underlies the entire section of Mark 7, verses 1 through 23. The Pharisees were missing the fact that they can't just honor God with more willpower or a greater perseverance in the law. They were missing the need to be justified and regenerated. They were missing the need for God to pour out his spirit within them and regenerate them from the inside out. They were missing the need for reliance upon the faithfulness of God and were instead relying on their own self-sufficiency. And so Jesus calls the people to himself in verse 14. And notice the words that he uses to preface his short teaching. He says in verse 14 of chapter 7, Hear me, all of you, and understand. Our mind goes back immediately to the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Well then, not only do the Pharisees and surrounding crowds not understand, but even his own disciples don't understand in verse 18. Throughout the gospel so far, we have seen time and time again where Mark tells us that the disciples do not understand. They even have hardened hearts. And so something must change. Something internal must occur for these same disciples to be able to proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. Their their ears must be unstopped. Their eyes must gain sight. And their hearts must be softened so that they might proclaim Jesus the Messiah come to save the world. And what is it that they were missing? Jesus was trying to tell those listening that all the rules that the Pharisees had about staying clean from the outside in was not the problem. Those ceremonial laws had been put in place to distinguish the nomadic Hebrews from the other pagan nations that surrounded them and from the other Canaanite people when they finally settled in Canaan. Take the food purity laws, for example. They were there to distinguish the people of Israel so that the other nations would look at them and say, as Deuteronomy 4, 6-8 says, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. It was to differentiate them and to show them that Israel was closer to God than anyone else. The whole mission of Israel was to be a people that pointed the surrounding nations to the glory of Yahweh. And that is why throughout even the Old Testament prophets, they foretold that the Messiah that would fulfill the perfect obedience of Israel would draw all nations to himself, including Gentile nations. In so doing, he would fulfill the promise of Abraham that we find in Genesis 12:3, that in the seed of Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Let's look at this promise to bring the Gentiles to himself. Turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah 56, for example. This chapter does a similar contrast and comparison to our text today between Israel's misunderstanding leaders and Gentiles that will come to saving faith in the Messiah. Let's read verses 1 through 8 in Isaiah 56. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. 
Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. We see here that those that were once seen as impure and unclean, Gentile nations and previously forbidden individuals, would be able to come to Yahweh through the salvation that is revealed through his work in the Messiah. And this was a promise to come, that through God's people, salvation would come for the Gentiles. Now look at verses 9 through 12. He contrasts the irresponsible leaders of Israel. All you beasts of the field come to devour all you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough, but they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. Isaiah compares the Gentiles who rely upon the graciousness of God with the ignorant leaders here of Israel that use their positions of influence to merely fulfill their own appetites. And notice the derogatory term of calling them dogs. Now go back with me to Mark 7. As the Messiah, Jesus is fulfilling the role of Israel, the perfectly obedient servant that is drawing the nations, the Gentiles, to himself, to Yahweh. In the midst of this, Jesus is saying, Hey Israel, you missed the point on the ceremonial law. And so I am now doing what they were supposed to help you accomplish. I'm drawing all people to myself. It's as if he's saying what you need is to allow me to cleanse your hearts of sin. And so Mark puts this odd little footnote in that verse 19 that says, thus he declared all foods clean. This was a massive statement that flew in the face of everything that the Pharisees stood for. In one teaching, Jesus dismantled the ceremonial food laws that the Pharisees were charged with keeping. In the book of Acts, the historian Luke carries forward the same idea when he chronicles the vision given to Peter in Acts 10. Would you turn to Acts 10, 9 with me, and we will read through verse 16. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, 
Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Through Christ, God made salvation available to the entire world. And this vision that Peter had was to prepare him for his meeting with a man named Cornelius, who was the first acknowledged Gentile that steps into the fullness of salvation through Christ post-resurrection. When Peter realizes this, he proclaims the section of text that my son Jaden read to us at the beginning of the teaching. He read to us from Acts 10, 34 through 43. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the whole, uh, to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. You see, the gospel was meant to cover the whole world. It was not just meant for the nation of Israel. They were merely uh, the means out of which the overflow of God's grace towards Israel would then flow out to the rest of the world to gain salvation. And that is what we have in our text in Mark. So let's go back and read the first of the two sections in Mark chapter 7. Turn back there to Mark 7, starting in verse 24 with me. And from there, Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But he answered him, uh, she answered him, Yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Here we will see our second main point in the teaching this morning. Faith comes to anyone who will hear in humility. Faith comes to anyone who will hear in humility. In an attempt to contrast the deafness of the Pharisees with the faithful hearing of unlikely Gentiles, Mark takes us to the region of Tyre and Sidon, northwest from the Sea of Galilee. This was a distance that would have taken a few days on foot. All told, the two sections we are covering today would most likely encapsulate a journey of a couple of weeks. 
Mark could not have chosen a more contrasting place or a more contrasting person to compare with the Pharisees of verses 1 through 23. And he touches on this in a number of ways. First, he pulls from a story of an event that occurred in Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon was known to the Jews to be a place of vast wealth in comparison to the poverty of the poorer classes in the area of Galilee. We see that they actually took food from the classes in Galilee in Acts chapter 12, verse 20, when the people of Tyre came to Herod asking for food from that area. And the historian Josephus called Tyre notoriously our bitterest enemies. To religious Jews, people in this area were about as impure as it gets. They were the very enemy of Israel, a complete contrast to the Pharisees. Second, he's interacting with a woman, a Syrophoenician woman. This was a woman that was definitely a Gentile. But even beyond that, Jewish men of the day would lump together women and Gentiles as lower than themselves. There was a horrifically derogatory idiom of the day that would go like this. Jewish men would say, God, thank you that you have not made me a woman, a Gentile, or a dog. I don't believe it's any coincidence then that when we look at the parable that Jesus used, it includes dogs eating from the master's table. That was, after all, the view of not only a woman, but a Gentile woman in the midst of the Pharisaic view. Well, third, the one to be saved is a child in the story. As evidenced in the well-known event when the disciples try to keep children away from Jesus, we see that in the society of this day, children were seen as a burden and a bother, unable to take on full responsibility in society or in the covenant community. And to top it all off, this wasn't just a child, but a child overtaken by an unclean spirit, a demon. In all three of these ways, the fact that the woman was from Tyre and Sidon, that it was a Gentile woman, and that the person to be saved was a child with an unclean spirit. In all these ways, the author of the gospel according to Mark is contrasting deeply against the Pharisees. Now, any self-respecting Jewish Pharisee would run quickly away from this situation, but not Jesus. He engages with this woman who is, in the eyes of any Pharisee, unclean. And at first, his interaction seems somewhat harsh, especially in the midst of the same event as recorded in the gospel according to Matthew. But Jesus is merely testing her faith. Jesus uses a parable that in essence is asking her the question, The Jewish people believe you Gentiles are nothing but dogs, fit for the fires of hell. What do you say about that? The flow of this out of what has just happened in chapter 7 is almost bordering on literary genius. Well, her response to Jesus' question of what she says about that is amazing. She does not fight the parable, as the Pharisees and even Jesus' disciples do with previous parables. She instead jumps feet first into it and agrees with him. In essence, she says, Lord, I am nothing in comparison to you and your people. And yet, I know you to be merciful, so that out of the overflow of your provision for your people, I know I can find mercy. J.R. Edwards, in his commentary on Mark, notices this response, and he says this, The woman is the first person in Mark to hear and understand a parable of Jesus. The brief parable of the children and dogs at the table has disclosed to her the mystery of the kingdom of God. 
She is not distant and aloof, attempting to maintain her position and control. She does what Jesus commands of those who would receive the kingdom and experience the word of God. She enters the parable and allows herself to be claimed by it. That she answers Jesus from within the parable, that is, in the terms by which Jesus addressed her, indicates that she is the first person in the gospel to hear the word of Jesus to her. End quote. Matthew gives us greater detail in chapter 15. In that account, the woman comes to him, bows before him, calls him the moniker of, O Lord, Son of David, proclaiming that he is indeed the Messiah. And then Jesus responds to her, O woman, great is your faith. She comes to him with messianic hope, asking for his grace out of the overflow that has been given to his chosen people. We're told in Romans 10, 17, that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This woman heard the words of Christ and bowed the knee, submitting to him in humility and recognizing her insufficiency and great need. God heard her cry and answered it with grace because faith comes to anyone who will hear in humility. Mark then takes us from that first story to the second story, back to the Decapoli. The Decapoli were a set of 10 cities on the northeastern and eastern side of the Sea of Galilee that is primarily Gentile in population. And here we encounter the second story of an unlikely recipient of faith. Let's read Mark 7, 31 through 37. Then Jesus returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapoli. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, Jesus put his fingers into his ears and after spitting touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released. And he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. The context for this man is that as we find elsewhere in the New Testament, those born with handicaps, as this man was, were seen as damned and unclean. Fault for their state of being was laid on their own sin or the sin of their parents. But again, Jesus moves past this barrier in a huge way. He points out the errancy of that kind of view. No Pharisee would have been caught dead interacting with a man like this, much less touching him, but not Jesus. Remember that Jesus is the Exodus God incarnate who hears our cries and knows our sufferings and visits us in the midst of them. Jesus not only lays a hand on him, but goes through a very intimate medicinal ritual. Saliva was thought in those days to have healing qualities and was frequently used for medicine. And so he spit on his hand and touched his tongue. Now, that's obviously not something I would recommend in our current climate, by the way. But Jesus then put his fingers in his ears and in acknowledgement to the Father, he proclaimed, Be opened. Mark was most likely writing this to keep people from believing that Jesus practiced some occult-like incantation of medicine and instead has him issuing a command. The results were amazing. Not only were his ears open, but his tongue was released. 
The wooden Greek translation here is something along the lines of, the shackle on his tongue was broken. This was so miraculous that even Jesus' command to keep the miracle quiet would not hold the watching crowds back. Mark finishes the section with their proclamation, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. In doing so, Mark is putting an exclamation mark after the idea that Jesus is the Messiah. He is calling to mind numerous eschatological promises of the Messiah, one of which was from our first reading that John gave us from Isaiah 32, 1-4, before the teaching. Let me read it to you now. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. Another promise of the Messiah to come comes from Isaiah 35, just a few chapters ahead. Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. These promises of messianic peace were being fulfilled in Jesus, demonstrating that he was ushering in the inauguration of God's kingdom, the kingdom that is here within his people, but has not fully yet experienced the world over. Our text today from Mark gives us such a sharp contrast to the hard hearts of the Pharisees and the disciples. In these two unlikely recipients in our stories today, the goodness of God is made manifest and the messianic promises to the Gentiles were practically seen. And all it took was through a humble submission in order to listen to the words of Jesus. Faith comes to anyone who will hear in humility. Dear brothers and sisters, these messianic promises were fulfilled in Jesus' first advent and they will be put fully in place at a second advent. We are simply waiting with bated breath for that return. In these trying times, we need to remind ourselves of this promise that will be fulfilled. The ransomed of the Lord, that's you and me, those of us who have given our lives over to Jesus and accepted his free gift of salvation. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. In this uncertain time where each of us is wrapped up in sorrow and sighing, we need to heed what the good news of God, according to Mark, is saying. Jesus doesn't need you to be perfect and sinless so that you can gain the good grace of God. 
In our text today, we see that it is actually in admitting our brokenness, admitting our lack of self-sufficiency, and admitting our need for his help, healing, and grace that he meets us and pours out faith into our hearts. Dear friend, if you are listening to this sermon online today, stuck in your home, I want to ask you to join me in declaring our insufficiency to God. We are indeed those who want and desire to accept mercies from our master's table. It is time for us to declare our absolute sinfulness, sickness, and brokenness. To declare our arrogance that we think that we can control this world that he has freely given us. Cry out with me that we need our master to give us even a crumb from his table. Cry out that we need him to unstop our ears so that we might take this time to quiet ourselves and hear him. So much is uncertain around us. But one thing that we do know is the bedrock of the gospel That never changes and will never change, no matter what has happened, no matter what comes. The bedrock of our faith is the gospel. That 2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus of Nazareth appeared on the scene in Israel. He ministered in a way that proclaimed the kingdom of God was here among us. And then he was crucified for crimes he did not commit. And three days later, he rose again and appeared to hundreds of witnesses, Then according to their testimony, he ascended into heaven after 40 days and promised to return one day to judge the living and the dead. Dear listener, you do not know what tomorrow brings now more than ever. If you are listening to this and you have not professed Jesus as your king and accepted that sacrifice on the cross in your place as the payment that ransoms you from the kingdom of darkness, now is the time to do so. You do not know what tomorrow may bring, but in Christ, if you give your life over to him, you can have assurance of faith that the resurrection to come will be a day of joy for you. Right where you are at, in your home, I beg of you to cry out to God so that he might unblock your ears and provide his spirit poured out into your heart. I hope you don't wait any longer. If you want to talk that through with someone, please feel free to reach out to me and email me at hans at missionsalem.com. That's H-A-N-S at missionsalem.com. And let me know that you want to follow Christ. And we can connect to discuss what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. Well, for those of us that are already following Jesus... I want to end with our third point by asking us to ponder a question. That question is, are we humbly hearing? And that's the third point for today. Are we humbly hearing? For all of us who are members of Mission Fellowship or regular attendees, I want us to ask that question of ourselves in this time where the earth stands still, so to speak. Are we humbly hearing? We looked at the deafness of the Pharisees and contrasted it to the humble hearing of the two Gentiles discussed in our text today. But I want to end by asking all of us, are we humbly hearing? Which group do we fall into? The hardened Pharisees trying to control things and earn God's approval through our white-knuckled obedience? Or are we more like the Gentile woman 
and the deaf-mute man, relying upon the graciousness of Jesus. In this season of uncertainty, I want to ask us, are we filling our time with more online articles, more streaming media, more news, to keep ourselves numb to the unprecedented events going on outside? Or maybe even to trick our mind into thinking that the more news we take in, the more control we have. Does that describe you? But what if we were to take this time to admit that things are broken and we are scared and to instead turn to the Lord and his word and genuinely listen? Two weeks ago, most of us would have said that we would have given anything to slow down and take a break from our busy lives, myself included. And so here we are, in a way, frozen in time. And I wonder if we might take this time to spend more time in silence and meditation on God's word. I wonder if we might press in more deeply in prayer. I wonder if we might cultivate the time we have with our families and treasure those moments of deep conversation with our brothers and sisters over the phone or FaceTime with one another. These moments with our children that seem so chaotic, these moments over the phone that seem like they're fleeting or not that important, are in fact deeply intimate and important. They're actually what we long to have in most days. Now we have the opportunity to have those. Is it time to stop and listen? Perhaps the Lord is using what Satan means for evil, death, and destruction to call his people to repentance and prayer so that we might recognize that we are not at all self-sufficient. We need God's sustaining power. We need his hand of protection in this world now more than ever. Perhaps you and I need to hear the fear that has crept up in our hearts as an indication that we need to turn to God, rely and trust upon his goodness and lay our lives back in his capable hands so that whatever might happen, we trust in his plan of resurrection, victory, and eternal shalom. Dear brother and sister, are we humbly hearing God's call to slow down and trust in him and love one another? Secondly, I wonder if this might be a time where God is working on the hardened hearts of those we live among. Make no mistake, the virus that's among us is there out of destruction. Its source is the father of lies, the one who comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But what if God was taking what Satan means for evil and using it for his glory and the good of mankind? Weeks or months from now, when all of this begins to fade away and life begins to return to some semblance of a new normal, you and I will most likely have a greater opportunity than many of us have experienced in our lifetime to proclaim the gospel. There is nothing more motivating for a person in the world to consider their mortality and eternal destination than what we have happening in the world right now. Are we hearing the call to the Lord, of the Lord, to be on our knees for those around us? Are we hearing the call to pray that their hearts might be softened through this pandemic? Are we praying for wisdom and understanding like we have never had before? Are we delving into the word so that we might know the gospel of the kingdom of God and of Jesus Christ better than ever before? 
Maybe this surrounding tragedy purposed by Satan is also a time in which God is opening our ears that we might hear him more clearly, so that at the end of all this, our tongues too might be loosened, like the second main character in our text today. Maybe it's time for our tongues to be loosened so that we can proclaim like never before the truth of God's good news, that we are all meant for eternity, and God desires us to be with him through that eternity. Are we humbly hearing in this time of preparation so that we might be able to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who will have softened hearts to humbly hear in the months ahead? Dear Lord, we pray, please give us hearts ready to hear. Help us to be your witnesses and your warriors as we go out each and every day to proclaim your good news, whether it be from our homes over the phone to our neighbors or in the midst of fighting against this plague. We again lift up those within our body who are the healthcare experts that are out on the front lines, caring for those who are sick and who need you so desperately. Mission Fellowship, I love you all deeply. I miss you all greatly. I long for the moment we can sing worship to our King together, standing side by side. That day will come again. We must simply be patient. And in the midst of this time, be on our knees to proclaim who our King truly is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word and your wisdom has the ability to transform us. We are your beloved children who can't help but marvel when our eyes see and our ears hear. When our eyes see your handiwork. When our ears absorb your instruction. Holy Spirit, only you can give us this sight. Only you can give us this hearing. Only you can change us. You make us new. We are born again through your work in our hearts. As a result of that work, we are able to overcome our own deafness and hear the glorious good news. The true and rightful King is seated at his throne. Your enemy cannot withstand the power of your love. Your people, called from every nation, have been made safe. Jesus, we are the people you have purified for yourself. We are zealous to take your word we have been taught today and spread it across creation. Loose our tongues to pour out praise and thanksgiving even now in our hearts and with our families. Even as we assemble in our individual households, bind our hearts together and let the effect of your word be multiplied. Strengthen our resolve to study your word. Let the fruit of the opening of our ears be evident. In Jesus' name, amen. And so, Mission Fellowship, may the love of the Father, the grace of the Son, and from a distance, the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all this week. Amen.